Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers and it has three, count them, three main poles to its manifesto. One, to make you write more. Two, to make you write better. And three, to make you happier while you do it. I am very excited because I had some posts this morning and uh, I put a little video up on Twitter and Facebook about it, but um, I have finally, after years of work, received the hardback of my second novel, The Ice House. It dropped through the door along, well, the postman knocked. I went to answer. I was on the loo at the time, so I had to do a very undignified kind of waddle to the door, pulling my trousers up, pulling my t-shirt down, answer the door feeling annoyed, slightly put out, and the postman handed me a bunch of packages, one of which was my book, which I didn't know I was going to receive this weekend, had no idea it had gone to the printers yet, uh, and I had such a an emotional reaction to it, I actually jumped, I, I wasn't expecting it, I thought, you know, with all the work and the fuss and the difficulties and then I mean I'm working on a new novel now I'm more than halfway through that I thought actually it would be rather old news and I've you know I've seen paperback proof copies so I thought I'd be not as affected as I were would to get to the end of the road with this but I just started jumping up and down and whooping with joy. I couldn't help myself. I couldn't. I just feel so great. <laughs> it's brilliant. Sorry, I'm not. This whole episode isn't just going to be a sort of like smug digest of of my achievements. Um, I'm just saying for what it's worth, because. You know, I hope it's okay for me to say this is not. Re- I I don't think it's an ego trip, really. I'm just saying I'm really grateful that my book has been printed. That Canongate and you know my editor and agent have you know worked so hard helping me get it finished. That I had the support of my friends, and now there's a real book, and it looks really freaking cool and you know this was what I w- I've wanted to do since I was five I wanted to be a writer and I think if I get too cool not to be just like absolutely out of my mind with joy and excitement when a book I've done comes out and I get to hold it in my hands then well that would be my loss wouldn't it if I get too if I get too much chill and I'm not just like whoop and along with that in the post came a copy of Sleeper's new album. Now, you won't know this because I've never mentioned it on the show before, but I, like in my teens, I was a massive Sleeper fan. I had like pretty much everything that they ever released. I mean, I, I don't think... I didn't have a copy of uh, Alice in Vain. I didn't have a copy of The Bucket and Spade EP or Gorgeous and Fully Equipped. None of those things will mean anything to you. That's just like how deep in Sleeper lore... I am the most used adjective in uh, sleeper lyrics is uh, strange, but 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 I've got a, I've got their new album, the modern world dropped through my door. I never thought if you told me when I was fifteen, if you told fifteen year old Tim that one morning, over half a lifetime later he would get, in the post in the same morning, 
in this distant and strange future a brand new sleeper album and a copy of his new book which is being published which just looks lush guys they spent cutting games i don't know why but for some reason maybe because my books are so sort of weird but they've spent so much money on making it look good the last one they gave like a little cummerbund and just did an amazing jacket design this one's a hardback it's got like a foil gloss on it so all the text and the like details in it look like ice it's so hot like anyone who like you're gonna you're gonna i love it and i think you will too it's really cool it looks great you know i made a load of you know made loads of changes actually from even the proof that i got sent we really went through we worked on it hard to make it just sing and it's there it's done and i'm spent the day writing and you know working i've been doing some some of the uh for though anyone who pre-orders via mr b's emporium if they get to 100 pre-orders which they might do by uh, may the 2nd then i'm going to put in some like a little bit a tiny bit of bonus material and i've been writing that this weekend and just having a ball and listening to the new sleeper album and i'm just really having a lovely lovely day guys i know i realize having like talked about the end of the world and having just come out of a depressive period it can sound worrying right i know i can jump about different topics and it can sound like i'm having a manic phase um and sometimes people worry for me and it's really touching. I just want to say I am fine. I'm excited because my book's come out. It's proportional. I haven't done anything sort of reckless. I thought about getting myself fish and chips for lunch. Well, not fish, but chips. And uh, and I, and I and even that seemed like slightly too giddy. And instead I had, instead I had a vegan salad. So just in case you think... I'm going to go off the rails or this is going to lead to a big crash. Um, you know, I'm all right. I'm <laughs> just very, very happy. And and thank you to uh, all of you who've been pre-ordering. Uh, I've been doing this thing, the road to 1,500. If I got uh, 1,500 pre-orders before um, May the 2nd, then the book will be a bestseller. So thank you to everyone who listens, who, you know, we get about, just over 6,000 listeners a week. So, you know, it's if if one in four people listening to this go and pre-order, that's what would happen. Probably won't happen, but I'm doing my best to make it happen and uh, get your support. I just want to say thank you to uh, uh, James, who got in touch uh, on Twitter today to say he's pre-ordered. Thank you very much. Um, and look, today, the other thing is... People have been messaging me and emailing me saying, do another first page critique, you monster. Stop speaking to authors. Stop. Stop trying to remake yourself as, as fucking the Terry Wogan of the literary podcasting world and look at someone's first page and have some opinions about it. Well, all right, you bastards. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it that's what i'm doing today so i've because i'm in a good mood right? 
I enjoyed doing it anyway, okay? I'm sorry, I was going to do it anyway. I'm. It's not because I'm in a good mood. It's like not like, finally, I'm going to give you what you want as if you, you and I are in some kind of antagonistic relationship, right? Like, I, I appreciate it. And people have said, this is the bit that we get a lot out of and can you do more of it? I, I've solicited that feedback, so it would be incredibly passag for me to then complain about it. It's just I've you know been writing and it's finding the time because it takes work. Well, here here I am doing it now. Um, and today's extract. So for those of you, if you want ever want to submit your own, um, then I'll give details at the end of the show. I am going to do some like live dates around the UK, and the talk at the moment is that some of those are going to be might even be live podcasts and. We might even get people to submit first pages and do some feedback live and record it so those of you who can't make it can listen as well. But that's the word on the street, folks. I can't say when those are going to be just yet, but I'm just getting to the point where I'll be able to talk about it. However, if you live near Bath or you don't live near Bath, but you just are a big me fan, um, I'm going... On the four, I can announce that on the fourteenth of May, I'm going to Mr. B's Emporium. I'm going to be doing a reading there, signing copies of uh, of the Ice House, chatting stories and books and reading. Um, I'd love to see you there. I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to come down. Tickets on their website. Would love to pack the place out for them, uh, or at least see a few of you. Say hello. And uh, yeah, just get out on the road. I'm looking forward to it. And I've got some other dates coming up, which hopefully I'll be able to announce soon. I'm very excited about them. In any case, let's get on with looking at today's first page. So I get, if you've not heard this before, the way that this show started was as a blog where people sent me the first page of their novels or short stories. uh, First 250 words. And I offer honest feedback. So today's extract is untitled and it's by David. Thank you very, very, very much, David, for submitting. Kane didn't want to believe. Detective Kamala Kane watched the words tumble from his thin lips. Lips she had kissed more times than she wished. Lips that had pressed against her own skin. Lips that had whispered with warm, sticky words in her ears like droop-fed honey. Those same lips now dripped with rotten words. Words she didn't want to believe. Words that couldn't be true. The Ford Crown Victoria blended into the ash grey of the winter-striped countryside. The unmarked police-issue car moved at a steady pace on the long country road. The city had already receded into a black cloud behind them when McKenna spoke the words. They were already too far to turn back. The point of no return was miles behind them and he knew that. He knew Kane better than she knew him. Knew she would have to see this through and gave her no choice other than being there at the finale. Kane swallowed down the anger that scratched at her skin. Needles were pressing up from within her, trying to pierce through. Her anger for him only surpassed by the fury she felt at herself. She pulled her arms tight around herself and tried to block it out, tried to douse her rage with anything she could. Hunched down in the passenger seat, she watched two raindrops chase each other down the windscreen before merging together, only for the wiper to sweep them off the screen. And here are my suggested cuts. Kane didn't want to believe. Great opening line. Punchy, named character, conflict. That's the trifecta, my friend. Detective Kamala Kane watched the words tumble from his thin lips. No, she didn't. 
unless he's vomiting alphabetty spaghetti and it's spelling out words like a Ouija board letter by regurgitated orange letter. Her scepticism would be perfectly understandable in that circumstance. Did you know Edwardian trance mediums sometimes used to manifest ectoplasmic visages of the deceased by wadding up muslin in their vaginas, then pulling it out once the lights were off? But in that circumstance, those people wanted to believe. But my scepticism didn't start there, David. Hello, David, by the way. Thank you very much for submitting. David, my dear friend and comrade in writing. No, it blossomed at the words, Detective Kamala Kane. Alliterative names exist in the real world. Boris Becker, Tina Turner, Cyril Sneer. But they have a certain cadence that forcibly suggests the defunct mascot of a failed waffle franchise. We know as readers, intellectually, that what you're telling us is a lie. We know that. Of course we do. It's no great secret. This isn't some fantastic piece of analysis that fiction is just a bunch of humans terrified of their own mortality, giving money to be gaslit by strangers. Once upon a time, there was a sad man. Bollocks. No, there wasn't. You just made that up. And yet... I'm strangely intrigued. Why, in this transparently false time you're inventing... Was this man sad? Because, frankly, I'm hoping if I tolerate this deception long enough, you'll tell me that the man became happy. In fact, I'm willing to pay you for the privilege. And this collusion between storyteller and reader is known as the willing suspension of disbelief. The term was coined by nervous, scagged Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who argued that if the author invested some, quote, human interest and a semblance of truth, end quote, that is to say something that feels like truth, even though we know it's not, then the reader would voluntarily pause their natural scepticism in service of the game, of the story. Human interest and a semblance of truth. You've got to make us care on an emotional level, and stuff has to feel real, even though it's not. Which is a thorny problem, right? Potentially. It's where we get the Tiffany problem, a term coined, I believe, by author Joe Walton to describe the dilemma faced by historical writers who sometimes can't use actual historical facts in their work because modern readers, possessed of their own misconceptions and prejudices, won't believe in it. Tiffany is a perfectly plausible 12th century name, short for Theophania, but many readers wouldn't accept it in medieval historical fiction because it looks too modern. And it's worth mentioning here, and this doesn't apply to you, or your extract, David. We'll be getting back to you in just a moment. Easy now. But it's worth mentioning, partially to just highlight this for more privileged listeners who might not have considered it, mainly to parade my social justice credentials through the medium of robust yet folksy praxis shot through with a raspberry ripple streak of delicious self-awareness, that this semblance of truth is not constant across time or cultures. It's deeply intuitive and hence vulnerable to all the unconscious prejudices we lug around with us like a big carousel of racist, sexist, ableist, classist spectacles. Oh, that seems off to me. Oh, I don't think people were gay before the advent of Channel 4. Oh, I'm not actually convinced Belgians live in rooftop eeries and swoop down at night on homemade canvas wings to pluck stray children from alleyways. No matter how progressive or conservative, sheltered or worldly we consider ourselves to be, we all have models in our heads that predict how members of different groups are or aren't, that proscribe and permit different behaviours. And if we encounter counterexamples in fiction, well, unless our trust in the author's authority is very, very strong, that semblance of truth falls apart like 
like a sponge cake in a Turkish bath. There are some things, some characters, some behaviours, some utterances that we might have accepted in fiction 20, 50 or 100 years ago that most readers don't now. And I'm not speaking in in pointedly neutral terms here to imply that this is an intrinsically bad thing. Not at all. I think shifting social norms are inevitable and they allow ways of being human that have previously been ignored or actively suppressed to be explored and celebrated. I'm just saying it's not as simple as saying, kid, you gotta make it feel real, or appealing to a fake westernised ethnocentric universalism that says humans are all the same, then locates that sameness round a straight white guy called Barry. And with that, I declare this important digression closed. My point is, people with alliterative names do exist in the real world. We know this, as do people in the same workplace or social group with the same name. But it's probably not a great idea to call three characters in your book Joe or Sam if we're going to be seeing a lot of them, even though to do so would be perfectly plausible. There would be no breach of the verisimilitude of your book, but it would be confusing. Calling your protagonist Kamala Kane, especially coming off the back of Detective, just feels kind of hokey. I can't give you a more granular critique than that, because look, I'm admitting it's a dumb, irrational prejudice. It's not an implausible name. It's just that encountering it here when your world is brand new and we're all hypersensitive to every tonal clue as a means of locating ourselves in a genre, in a reality... Introducing her as Detective Kamala Kane has the same resonance as jockey Dickie Dobbins or society darling Petunia Parsley. Even if you refer to her in this first instance as Detective Kane, you immediately invest her with more dignity. And I don't think, by the way, you you gain anything by coyly holding back from letting us hear what he actually said. It feels like a tease that you haven't earned. I don't care is the bottom line because I'm not invested in your world yet. You haven't given me the human interest and the semblance of truth that would lead me to believe and thus care. Lips she had kissed more times than she wished. So we're on line three and already you're jumping out of the narrative present to give us some backstory because that's not happening now, right? That's her past. So that's not the sole reason, by the way, I don't feel like this bit works. But from a structural point of view, it is a big one. And I've talked about this before. Samuel R. Delaney in his excellent book about writing. I'll stick a link in the show notes. Though be warned last time I checked, it was tricky and expensive to get hold of. Good luck. But Samuel R. Delaney calls this, in his opinion, one of the weakest fictional structures he encounters. We go, striking, dramatic thing in the narrative present. Then on the second or third sentence... It had all started back in second grade when he bought that hamster. And we jump back into some less interesting piece of historical context that's presumably going to inform or colour what's going on in the present. Stick with the narrative present wherever you start. Please stay with it. Keep us in the moment. That's how human beings experience the world. And, And look, while... I'm not denying you can play all sorts of games with time and psychological realism versus a sort of detached storytelling voice and and have success with all of those things. It remains an incontrovertible maxim of storytelling that human drama in the present moment engages the reader's attention. Attention, clap emoji, is clap emoji, a clap emoji, metabolically clap emoji, costly clap emoji process. And you need to spike that cortisol, the stress hormone 
or maybe to a lesser extent dopamine to give the reader a little reward right off the bat in order to motivate the reader to pay attention to your made-up world. But also, the presumably accidental side effect of describing the motion of his lips but not the sound coming out of them is it gives the impression that your protagonist is so horny thinking back to all the times they've smooched that she's gone hysterically deaf. He's like, I have to tell you something of huge importance. And she's like, can't hear you. But it's very lips that had pressed against her own skin. Lips that had whispered with warm, sticky words in her ears like drip-fed honey. Awful. Just wretched mixed metaphor in the second sentence there. Lips that had whispered with warm, sticky words in her ears. One, whispered is a transitive verb. You whisper words, you don't whisper with words. Two, warm, sticky words sounds gross. You make it sound like he's talking dirty while eating glue. Three... I'm no medical professional, but I'm pretty sure you don't drip feed someone by pouring honey into their ears. To convey two characters in a sexy clinch, neither of whom we've seen do anything in the present moment besides mouth noiselessly, you're asking us to imagine this guy sicking up honey into her ears like some deranged mother seagull on mescaline. Like, I'm not kink-shaming anyone here. If that's your thing, go for it. But psychically... It's a hell of an on-ramp. Those same lips now dripped with rotten words. Words she didn't want to believe. Words that couldn't be true. So for the third time, you're, you're making his words a physical reality, only now he's like a carrion eater sicking up a half-digested antelope. Words she didn't want to believe. We know. We know you've already said that. Instead of repeating information, give us direct access to the words in question. Let us form our own judgments by hearing word for word what he says. Give us dialogue. It's it's a thing that happens in books. Stop doing all these fancy metaphors. Stop telling us how she feels and dramatise instead. The Ford Crown Victoria blended into the ash grey of the winter-striped countryside. The unmarked police-issue car moved at a steady pace on the long country road. Now, this I'm going to show my ignorance here, but I'm assuming the Ford Crown Victoria is a car. Some readers may understand what you're talking about without thinking about it. For me, it took a couple of passes to settle on an interpretation. But then you go on to describe it in a completely different way in the next sentence as the unmarked police issue car. Weirdly, both sentences in this instance describe the exact same thing. The first going for lyrical decadence, the Ford Crown Victoria blended into the ash grey of the winter striped countryside. The second for a stripped down functionality unmarked police issue car moved at a steady pace on the long country road like pick one and go for it don't do the same thing twice to check you've covered all bases now this paragraph is confusing in my defense partly because we've suddenly leapt out of detective kane's point of view into a wide shot right like you you put us in this confined moment of sexual and emotional tension in the car through her viewpoint knowing only what she knows and then click suddenly we're outside sitting with some fucking chaffinch or whatever birds are in season in the winter 200 meters away watching a gray car why 
I'm not sure what you mean, by the way, by winter-striped countryside either. Has it snowed? You describe the countryside immediately before as ash grey, but then it's also striped. Is that a thing? The city had already receded into a black cloud behind them when McKenna spoke the words. Look, David, I just want to pause for a moment and say genuinely you are a valuable, worthwhile person. I'm really grateful for your submitting this. And all writing is corrigible, changeable. There's no failure, only feedback. You sat down, you wrote it, you submitted to learn stuff. I think that's admirable and inspiring. This extract isn't you. It's just one thing you produced once. I don't want it to sound like anything I'm saying is is directed at you as a person or indeed anyone else listening who might have made similar mistakes. I know I definitely have multiple times and continue to do to write right through our careers is to, is to make errors. All creativity, all originality is predicated on the willingness to get it wrong. So, right. This sentence, the city had already receded into a black cloud behind them when McKenna spoke the words. Actually, it wouldn't be a bad first sentence. I think your first sentence is excellent, but this wouldn't be a bad first sentence. Black cloud is is a bit distracting as a metaphor. It makes it sound like this is post-apocalyptic. But in any case, look again, but when it comes here, you're we're only a couple of sentences in. And, and, and again, you're abandoning the present moment to jump back to actually just a few seconds prior and repeat telling us that he said some words still without letting us hear what they actually are. Look, we get some more detail here. Sure, the guy's called McKenna. They're driving away from a city. But the chronology of this scene is the equivalent of the tangle of wires I've got here at the foot of my desk. Ooh, it's like a snake's wedding, as I never say. It's not that I can't follow what you're saying in this scene. I understand on a raw, factual level what's happening. I'm just not sure I care. And that's not anything to do with the actual interaction itself and the basis of what's going on here because this could be a fascinating scene right gripping it matters to the characters there's conflict tension emotion these two characters have a history which is why they're invested and something has gone wrong or something's been revealed you've you've brought us into the story at a moment of revelation like that on paper in the I mean, I know all books are on paper, but in the metaphorical sense, on paper, that is a really, really good recipe for a scene. And you've started right at the point of revelation, right at the point of conflict, theoretically, as late as possible. But you build it up so much, David. You go into these big lyrical flights of fancy. You use multiple similes and metaphors, sometimes Frankenstein together into these lopsided metaphysical conceits, sometimes pulling in utterly contrary directions, like the segments of a human centipede getting in the way of each other and pooping into each other's mouths and 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 you can't quite commit to starting in that moment you know i think you understand that it's good to start as late as possible but then you kind of panic you get the yips and you start jumping back to kind of explain yourself and make sure the reader understands by the end of this extract, you, you still haven't told us what was said. And I know that's deliberate. I know you're conscious of that. You're, you're trying to tease us. You're trying to make us feel like, oh, gosh, whatever could it have been? And the raindrop metaphor is nice. It, it's well observed. You, you know, it's it, it's a little tickling cliche, but I don't mind. You know, you actually tell it very simply and unadorned. But I'm frustrated because you've shut me out of the story 
I'm the reader. I ought to have a fucking VIP front row access all areas ticket. And instead I'm like some fucking shit muncher standing outside the fire exit, listening through the keyhole. Emblazon this in 10 mile high letters on the surface of the moon. Building suspense is not about withholding information. It's about giving the reader enough information so they understand the stakes and know exactly how much shit the protagonist is in. David, there is a good scene in here. There is, in fact, an excellent scene in here. The first line is unimpeachably good. I'm not having a go. Someone dropping a bombshell in the enclosed space of a car is an inherently dramatic situation. But you need to cool it. Limit your similes and metaphors. Be direct. Please, please, please have the courage to write simply. And that's it. That is today's whole show. If you'd like to submit... Look, I take submissions of up to 250 words. I'm looking for your first page in the title. That's it. If you send me more than 250 words, I won't use it. I don't want explanations of what it's about or a blurb, just the text in the body of an email. That's it. If you go to the show notes, then there's a link to my website, timclairpoet.co.uk, or you can just search for my website, click the contact me button and, and, and drop me your extract if it's ready. Please try to give me things that you've polished and work on. I want to be critiquing your best work, not something that you just manage to like crimp out like a big turd and then you're like, I can't bear to look at it again. Maybe Tim Clare can fix this for me. I want it to be your best work. I want to be criticising you at the top of your game. I want to find problems that you didn't know were there. I know that's scary. And if it's too scary, you know, you don't have to submit yet. You can, you know, wait and see what happens and, and get ready. I encourage you to. I love, love you to. But, you know, genuinely, I don't ever want to do this and, like, bum people out by doing it. I want to empower you to make your work better so that you can submit it to people so that you can find readers so people can read your stuff and go fuck yeah this is awesome look anyway i don't have anything more to say except thank you for being awesome for your support your encouragement your emails and your love i feel the same way about you i love you you're wonderful please i beg of you have a splendid writing week